zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing An Eye for an Eye, released August 14, 1981. It was written by James Bruner and William Gray, based on a story by Bruner, directed by Steve Carver, and released by Avco Embassy. James Shigeta was reportedly cast for the Mako role, but had to withdraw from the film due to a family illness. The producers originally wanted Andre the Giant for the Professor character, until they were convinced that Toru Tanaka could play the part in platform shoes for much cheaper. San Francisco police are notoriously uncooperative with film crews, so off-duty Los Angeles cops were substituted on set. That's about it for behind-the-scenes information here. Not a lot. So the platform shoes, is that's why he had that big boot? I don't know if that's why he had the big boot, but they wanted Andre because they wanted it to be a tall, imposing person. Right. And uh, Professor Tanaka is only 6'1 or something like that, and they wanted someone bigger than that, that you could sense their size on screen. I was confused, though, because I thought he had, you know, the thing where one leg is shorter than the other. Yeah, like a clubfoot situation. Yeah, because it looked like he was only wearing one platform shoe. Right, correct. Yeah. Okay. But I think on set he was wearing two to be taller. Hmm. compared to the other actors. Over the Avco Embassy logo, we hear rain falling and lightning striking. Uh, This is always a good start. It was a dark and stormy night. Right. (laughs) There's good movies that start like that, too. Namely, Big Trouble in Little China. (laughs) A pulsing turn signal fills the screen and then pulls away to reveal a pair of cops on a rainy stakeout, Sean Kane and David Pierce, played by Chuck Norris and Terry Kaiser. Kane is grossed out by Dave's cigar smoke. They notice their contact disappearing into the hotel rows, and they pull up to the curb outside. In a crowded hotel lobby, they find a television in the corner tuned to Dave's wife, reporter Linda Chan, as played by Rosalind Chow. She's speaking to the owner of a local massage parlor, which the man claims is a great benefit to the local economy. We provide what's most important in the world today, companionship. I mean, everybody needs somebody, right? I mean, our business is supplying that somebody. And I might add, at a very reasonable and not too exorbitant price. Do you remember the last time someone used a news broadcast to promote their smutty material? Polyester? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Fishpaw, I'm Jerry Holland from Channel 12 News. Um, I was wondering, could you make a comment on this demonstration against your X-rated movie theater? I'll show any movie I want to show. This is a free country, isn't it? Kane is amused by the case the man is making. Their contact comes down the hotel stairs and says that he can't talk to Kane here, so he and Dave follow the man out. They don't follow the man close enough, though, and he connects with a few other street toughs outside. Kane gets a bad feeling about the arrangement. In a darkened back alley, they are ambushed by the contact and a few more gunmen. Stay here to set up! Kane is hit in the shoulder. Dave is quickly shot through the chest and stumbles toward a parked car, But the second he gets to it, another vehicle races up and pins him between the vehicles as he bursts into flames. I feel like this is a little excessive. He's shot, run over, and set on fire. fire. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny because, and I don't know why I got this feeling about Terry Kaiser, but I thought that the twist was going to be that he was going to turn and he was going to be the bad guy. And then when he gets pinched between two cars and just smoldering on fire, you're just like, oh, Jesus, no, he's not the bad guy. (laughs) Kane watches helplessly as Dave is engulfed in fire. Kane makes note of a white dog barking in the back seat of the attacker's car before it backs out of the alley and skids away. While Kane shoots at retreating henchmen, he rushes to the smoldering remains of Dave to provide assistance, but it's too late. <laughs> remains of the Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, now he's going to have to carry him around and pretend like he's still alive. Yeah, just prop him up on his shoulders and puppeteer his body. He's dead and burnt to a crisp. Next, Kane checks on the henchman he killed that was running away and moves to pursue the one that he missed. Creeping through a hotel hallway, Kane scares an innocent woman back to her room and then kicks a door as a fake knock. Someone shoots through the door into the hall, so Kane busts it in and disarms the shooter against a kitchen cabinet. 
He wants to know who was driving the car that killed Dave, but the man spits in his face and pulls a knife. So Kane punches him out the window and several stories down to the roof of a parked car. Do you remember the last time someone got punched out a window and down several stories to their death? Hmm. It was a Patreon episode, and it was a woman. Doing the punching? Getting punched. Oh, uh, uh, play Misty for me. That's right. Yeah. Immediately, Captain Stevens, as played by Richard Roundtree, is in the doorway demanding an explanation. We cut back to the station where Kane receives a lecture about his recklessness from the captain. We hear most of the conversation over shots of Kane stalking the halls of the precinct with his arm in a sling. He claims they were set up by their contact, but Captain Stevens isn't buying it. He wants Kane to cough up a specific leak that killed this undercover operation, or to keep the accusation to himself. Unless, of course, uh, you're just making excuses to cover up for your own incompetence. In these movies, the angry captain is usually right, and this is no exception. They foolishly walked into a trap, and then Kane killed a guy he should have taken into custody. Yeah. When Stevens asks what he's supposed to tell the commissioner, Kane offers up his gun and badge. On Kane's way out of the building, a weaselly cop named Mac, played by Matt Clark, offers Kane his condolences. Kane sits down in his car and unconvincingly punches the steering wheel in frustration. He peels out of the parking lot, past a stop sign, and off into the city. We cut to Dave's full policeman's funeral, complete with bagpipes and a 21-gun salute. Kane is the only man out of uniform, suggesting he has officially quit the force. And nobody else wants to be friends with cops. Oh. <laughs> Dave's wife, Linda, is comforted by her friend Heather Sullivan, and then Kane walks up to offer his condolences. He notes out loud that her father, James, isn't here, and she says that he hardly leaves home anymore. I'm assuming the actor who plays this character later just wasn't available on set this day, because there's no reason to include this detail. Linda demands answers. She wants details of the undercover operation and the men who killed her husband. She mentions that Dave made it sound like they were on the verge of something big, and Kane confirms that their contact, Montoya, was expected to help them take down a huge heroin ring, but someone leaked it to Montoya that Kane and Dave were cops. Linda wants the people who did this to be held responsible. They are not going to get away with this shot. (laughs) That night, Kane is working out near his dog, Mort, on his back patio. He whips off his shirt, and the dog puts it away in a hamper. For some reason, this scene reminds me of Ron Burgundy and Baxter's scenes together. In oh, Anchorman. yeah, totally. I, I, the decor of the room, even, is very reminiscent. It's actually, I'm not even mad. That's amazing. <laughs> he flips on the news and catches another pre-recorded report from Linda, who was apparently asked to do a remote segment hours after her husband's funeral. Oh, yeah. no, I guess this is, like, months later. Because she's been doing investigating on her own since his death, apparently. And, and his uh, arm is healed up. Right. The phone rings now, and it's Linda calling in a panic. She says she's got the evidence she needed, and now people are after her. She's chased through a BART station by a henchman we will come to know as The Professor, played by former professional wrestler Professor Toru Tanaka, who seems to be running with a platform in just one shoe, causing him to run at a slight angle. He's got like a 15-degree angle to his run. Look, I was born on the side of a hill. Exactly. What is that from? Bringing up baby. There you go. He chases her through crowds until she sees more henchmen ahead of her and heads the wrong way down an escalator because one side is closed. But as the great Mitch Hedberg pointed out, I like an escalator because an escalator can never be broke. It can only become stairs. There would, there would never be an escalator temporarily out of order sign. Only an escalator temporarily stairs. <laughs> Sorry for the convenience. The professor starts tossing bystanders down the escalator to follow her. She squeezes onto a crowded subway car, but she can hear the commotion of the incoming professor and slips out between the car's closing doors. On her way back up to street level, she looks at the locker key in her hand. When she gets back to her car, she's blocked in by a guy unloading a truck, so she runs desperately into traffic to flag down a taxi. Several cars swerve to narrowly avoid her. The cab driver is a chatty Cathy and lets the professor get right up in front of the car before driving away. The professor is still standing in the street when he's struck by a man in a green VW bug, and in response, he pounds the hood of the car in. Linda puts in another call to Kane, and she says she has cut-and-dry evidence, but she doesn't know who she can trust from the police, so he tells her to meet him at the pier. So, I'm immediately horribly angry with her. I was like, you went home? You're a famous reporter. Everyone knows who you are, and they can very easily find out where you live. Yeah. Also, you keep talking about evidence. 
we'll come to find out she knows the exact name of the person who's running this. Yeah. Just tell could him have the just said name it. of the person. Yeah. And there's other problems too, like the redundancy of having her call him twice and give yeah. a little bit of information and then almost not get home, but then get home safely. Yeah. And it's like, why did that all need to happen? She hears someone fiddling with her doorknob and stops responding to Kane. She creeps over to the door while Kane begs for any information at all. And when she's right alongside the door, a fist punches straight through it and she drops the phone to run screaming through her apartment. She looks down at the locker key in her hand as the henchmen bust into her place and we cut to Kane running full speed down a dock toward his boat to race out into the darkness. The professor chokes Linda to death and the other henchmen take turns being disgusted and aroused by the murder. Because one of them's like, ugh, and the other one's like, ah. It's like uh, that scene in Sin City where they're watching uh, Michael Clark Duncan work over Rosario Dawson. Right. I can watch him do his thing all day. (laughs) Do you guys recall the last time we saw Chuck Norris fail miserably to protect multiple people? Yeah, imagine it's the octagon. That's correct. <laughs> the only other Chuck Norris movie we've seen. The movie that has now made me sad that he's not just whispering to himself yeah. as an inner monologue throughout this entire movie. I wanted his dialogue to just echo for no reason. <laughs> and and I don't understand like his transportation. So yeah. he he parks a car somewhere. <laughs> That's my next line. And then takes a boat yeah. to his house. Somehow Kane has traded his boat for a car, and by the time he gets to Linda's building, it's an active crime scene overrun with police. What took him so long to get here? And why didn't he call the police and have them go to Linda's place? Right. He definitely got a call before they did, but when he walks into the building, there's like 30 cops in the room. A cop at the door who recognizes him as ex-police tries to stop him, but Mac gives him permission to enter. He leads Kane to Linda's corpse, hung on the wall despite being strangled with the professor's bare hands. Mac probes Kane's testimony suspiciously. And she didn't say where she was, except at a BART station. What the evidence was. <laughs> He's really concerned about what this evidence was. Heather Sullivan, Linda's friend from the funeral, shows up to the crime scene. She walks right up to Mac and explains that she is a neighbor and friend of Linda's and that some of her things are here in Linda's apartment. Weirdly, Mac just stares at her yeah. and doesn't respond, even as the woman sounds on the verge of tears. I understand you're going to seal off this apartment and I'd like to get some of my things. I'm Heather Sullivan. I live upstairs and I'm a friend of Linda's. So my clothes and things are here. I'm a friend of Linda's and some of my things are here. Look, I know it's not the right time, but I just want to get some of my things. Miss, I'm sorry. I can't help you. I'm not the person you want. See that man right over there? (laughs) I was like, yeah, it's not the right time. Yeah, you're right. It's not. (laughs) Even weirder than Mac's reaction is the fact that a woman would barge through a bloody crime scene looking to reclaim borrowed clothes. Like, I just can't give up that jacket. Max says that he can't help, and he points her across the room to a different detective who also ignores her. She tries to get the man's attention when Linda's body is carried past her covered in a blanket, and I really wanted her to whip it off and say, hey, that's my shirt, and just start taking his <laughs> shirt off the dead woman. <laughs> Captain Stevens shows up and notices Kane before banning all non-police personnel from the scene. On his way out, Kane approaches Heather with a handkerchief to blow her nose in. He briefly touches her arm to comfort her, and then leaves. Press outside, recognize Officer Kane, or former Officer Kane, and ask for information, but he has no comment. A reporter from Linda's channel speaks into camera about her slain colleague, and her new promotion, probably. Across the street, as Kane gets back into his car, he finds a tow truck preparing to drag it away. Even though the tow truck driver is twice the size of Chuck Norris, he's intimidated enough by Kane's gruff exterior to let the man drive his car away. Right before he leaves, there's a flurry of press surrounding a man played by Christopher Lee as he arrives at the scene of the murder. Again, he offers them no comment. I'm not sure why he's here. When we learn who he is, it doesn't make sense for him to show up to the murder scene. Well, I I guess it kind of makes sense. I mean, uh, in, in, in that... Well, I mean, we'll get to that. Yeah. But. We cut to the coroner's office where Kane is somehow able to walk right in on Linda's autopsy. Mac is here already, too, so they must have left at the exact same time. The coroner tells the police that her injuries are consistent with strangulation, and we can even see the bruises and the shapes of fingers on her neck. Based on the injury, two snapped vertebra, whoever did the strangling must have been huge. Eyewitness testimony confirms she was chased through the BART station by a large man. Again, Mac wonders about the evidence she found, and Kane is surprised that nothing was discovered at the crime scene. Mac claims not to know because Captain Stevens put a lid on the case, which Kane finds suspicious. On his way out of the building, he crosses paths with Stevens again. Stevens fills us in on some exposition that Kane has been a friend of Linda's family for some time. In fact, her father James is the one who taught him martial arts. 
Stevens also wonders why she would reach out to an ex-cop instead of the police for help. Is there someone on the force she's afraid of? You tell me. Kane drives home down a coastal road and we notice a helicopter following him. Real subtle, guys. This is this is supposed to be a discreet tale. They're just yeah. flying a helicopter right next to his car down the road. As a as a frequent issue of recording this podcast, we can tell you the helicopters are loud. Yeah. <laughs> he takes the road out to Linda's father's home right across the bay from the Golden Gate Bridge. He walks through the open front door into James's home. Inside the house, he finds several framed photos of Dave and Linda together. Outside the home, he finds James, played by Mako, mourning the death of his daughter. James has evidently been informed that she was killed by drug runners, and Kane explains that she had evidence against them. James tells Kane that he requires retribution, hence the title. His doorbell rings, and James explains he's been expecting Captain Stevens, who seems to just be following Kane around the city today. They've been in every scene for the last four scenes in a row. When James leaves to answer the door, Kane finds himself surrounded by armed men in matching jumpsuits. The three of them try to take Kane hostage, and he kicks the shit out of them, and chokes one to death with his own automatic weapon. He recognizes a distinctive triad tattoo on the dead one's forearm. In the distance, his helicopter tail is doing loop-de-loops, and then starts firing on Kane with a machine gun. Kane somersaults into the house to check on James. More uniformed henchmen fill the living room, and James fights them off. Kane joins the fight, and eventually they get the upper hand together. Kane keeps wandering needlessly outside where the helicopter can shoot at him. He sees another pair of men scaling the cliffs beside James's property, and just when they get to the top, he karate chops one and sends them plummeting down the face of it, and the helicopter leaves. So, these guys. Which guys? The cliff guys the specifically? Cliff guys, they had a rope that went all the way down to the bottom of the cliff. Right. So how did they get the rope to the top? And Grappling hook. And why don't they just come in through the street yeah <laughs> like what was the point of this how long were they down there climbing up it's like when they could have just been walking down a road yeah the road that he drove to to get to this house he he came up a different cliff oh okay he parked his car <laughs> and then put the up rope up for them yeah, yeah. <laughs> perfect kane gets back into the house just in time to save james from the last henchman your intervention was well meant but premature i am still able to defend myself against Men such as these. Needy Kaidai. He informs James that these men have triad affiliations. James considers torturing the last man for information, but Kane assures him that the triads are sworn to secrecy. He won't talk. He'd die before he broke his oath. Kane suggests leaving the henchmen strewn about the property for Stevens to find, and James says they will seek vengeance together. When Kane arrives home later, his alarm is blaring and Mort is barking and warning. This poor dog's been locked in this yeah. blaring house for hours. Yeah, the, the when the security alarm goes off, the entire house locks down with giant metal bars. Yeah, it's like 13 Ghosts style. Yeah. <laughs> he also has a remote control that opens anything that he wants just by... Whatever it's pointed at, Yeah, basically. We don't see any evidence of a break-in and Kane congratulates Mort for scaring away the burglars. Later, Kane roughs up a punching bag fueled by flashbacks of Dave and Linda's deaths. Um, when when the flashbacks were happening, it cut to the dog in the window. Yeah. And at that point, I was like, I was laughing. <laughs> I was like, man, I really want this dog to have absolutely nothing yeah. to do with this movie. Just for no reason. They keep showing that detail. <laughs> Eventually, the bag just falls out of the tree it was hanging from. Not even from a punch, it would seem. It looks like a PA just dropped it, which is probably what happened. A similar moment was handled better in Captain America Winter Soldier when Steve Rogers punches the bag off its chain across the room before picking up a different bag to start into. Also, I guess he was punching this bag for six hours or around Does he there. say something like that? No, because the tide is way in when he starts, and when he's done, the tide is way out. Oh my god, you're paying attention. <laughs> well, I only noticed that the tide was way out because all of a sudden I, it, it was really out. Yeah. And I was like, well, his boat's... His boat's in the dirt now. He can't leave his house now? because no, he can only leave certain hours. Yeah. Um, but then I went back and I saw, oh no, the tide's definitely in when he starts punching. Interesting. Mort starts barking to get Kane's attention, and then we cut to the Channel 6 news building. He wanders into a control room for a stage and just starts fiddling with the buttons on the deck like a fucking child. <laughs> I, as soon as he walked in, I was like, dude, push a button. Yeah. Just do it. Just start pushing buttons. Just as he reaches for one of the levers, a voice reprimands him. Not that one. That one could put us off the air. It turns out Linda's friend Heather is a co-worker here at Channel 6. 
She returns the handkerchief he loaned her at the crime scene, I guess to remind us who she is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the point of this otherwise, like, my boogers are still on this little bit. Is she the Irma to Linda's April O'Neil? Yeah, exactly. Or is she the April? Apparently they've arranged to meet here so that they could scrub through all of Linda's reports for clues. Heather is an editor here and knows the equipment well. She's able to fast forward through the important parts and zoom in where Kane directs her to. One of the reports mentions the shutting down of Marseille's famous French Connection. Do you guys recall the last time we discussed the French Connection? Nope. It was a Patreon episode. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think of... Because it was the sequel to the French Connection. Or not no. the... No, no it's no. the first film. It was the first film? Yeah. Oh. The French Connection. Oh, was it the French Connection? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I said no sarcastically. <laughs> oh. Well, th- that, that, then that's what threw me off. I was just leading him through it. <laughs> yeah. As they scroll through the footage, Christopher Lee appears. (laughs) So dumb. (laughs) As they scroll through the footage, Christopher Lee reappears behind them, watching them work. Kane spots a suspicious character in the background of one of the reports who notices he's on camera and quickly turns to escape the shot. This is Montoya, the connection who set them up at the start of the film. Finally, the Christopher Lee character, who we'll come to know as Mr. Canfield, speaks up and asks Kane to visit his office before leaving the building today. When we see Mr. Canfield's office, it overlooks Alcatraz in the bay. Do you guys recall the last time that Christopher Lee's office overlooked Alcatraz? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. Because it was that movie where the daughter is in a cult and they go to get her back. That's right. And I don't remember the name of that movie. (sighs) I can give you some hints. It was different couples getting divorced and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh... It's not... Do you remember what it was adapted from? No. A series of articles? Oh. Um, was it Serial? And so it's called Serial. Oh, Ugh. God. Because it's adapted from a serial. Oh, such... The ones with the worst names. I, I can never remember. Terrible title. Canfield expresses to Kane how devastated he was at the loss of Linda and mentions that ordinarily he would never allow the police to review footage like this, but that Kane's reputation precedes him and he is impressed, even though Kane's not a policeman anymore, as we've covered. He offers up any assistance their station can provide. As he passes through the building on his way out, Kane meets up with Heather again, and she confirms that Linda and Canfield were very close. She makes Kane carry a big stack of clamshells for her, and she promises to do more research and get back to him. She gives him her number, and he smiles. We cut to Chinatown and the requisite Chinese xylophone music. We get a quick montage of Kane asking people probably the same questions, and the answer being a unanimous no. An old man in front of a shop seems to recognize him, and he's heard through the grapevine that he's looking for Montoya. Hours later, Kane arrives at a mansion, and as he steps inside, a heavyset rich dude named Nicky LaBelle, played by Stuart Pankin, begs him to interrupt the fight that is now destroying his building. Kane is amused to find James here beating up the rich guy's security team. Again, Kane beats up the last henchman with James in a headlock, and he makes it look so effortless that a nearby pack of models giggle about it. Sometime later, Nicky LaBelle sits behind a desk as two of his models massage him. James and Kane are both here to learn where Montoya is, and they believe LaBelle knows the answer. It seems like LaBelle runs an escort service out of this property, and confidentiality is key to his business. Kane picks up a priceless statue and wordlessly threatens to drop it on the floor until LaBelle coughs up the information. Later, Kane is driving James around, and James confirms that the last henchman earlier refused to divulge any information. You are correct about the triad, however. I tried to question him. He preferred to expire. Kane parks in an alley behind the address they got from LaBelle. They knock on the door, and James shouts something in a foreign language, and then the door is opened. Kane wanders through the building and finds a crowded opium den, and Montoya in bed with multiple women. A fight ensues, and Montoya claims that he never had any choice of what he did. I was just a bait. They were on to you. They knew all about you. Who are they, Tony? I can't tell you. You know that. I can't. He drags Montoya outside, and while they're standing in the alley, a car skids up and fires on them, forcing James and Kane to dive to the ground to avoid gunfire. When the shooting stops, Montoya books it for the car and hops through the backseat window before they drive off into the night with his ass and legs hanging out of the car. The man holding Montoya in the backseat is the professor, and Kane suspects he is the large man responsible for Linda's death. Not until he's dropping off James does it occur to Kane that the henchman rescued Montoya conveniently quickly. 
James assumes LaBelle tipped them off, but Kane isn't so sure. And I don't know who they're implying did this because yeah. we don't come back to this point. As they part ways, James criticizes the form of Kane's martial arts. Perfection is approachable soon, as I've often told you. The next day, Kane puts in a call to Heather at the station and sounds surprised by something. What? Okay, stay put. I'll be right there. He returns to Linda's building, where her apartment is still boarded up and knocks on Heather's door. She has all the locks engaged and asks who's knocking in a shaky voice, as though in fear for her life. Inside, the place is a mess. Someone has broken in and rifled through all her things. A couple audio cassettes are also missing. I have sound effects on cassettes. I record them, sort of a hobby. I've sold them to sound libraries. Do you guys recall the last time someone's sound library got raided by someone looking to destroy evidence? I do. What was that? Blowout. That's correct. All my tapes are blank. You know, I don't get you, man. First you feed me all this nutty assassination shit, then you give me a blank tape. What for? Because somebody erased it. They've erased all my tapes. When she was talking about the sound library and, and making recordings, there's this weird set of dialogue that I, I wrote down because I started laughing after I heard it. Chuck Norris goes, Linda had an awful lot of recording equipment. And she goes, what do you mean? He goes, I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. What a great conversation. So much was revealed through this dialogue. I feel like there were lines like that in the octagon where you're just like, what are these people trying to say to each other? It just sounds like AI wrote it. Yeah. Kane recommends she pack a bag and stay with him for a while. She also mentions that she did some research and found out that the report they found Montoya in the background of was shot on Pier 2 near a freighter called the Sulu Sea. Back at his apartment later, she compliments his beautiful house and asks how he found it, and he claims to have built it himself. (laughs) How did you ever find it? I built him. You're a very handy guy. She's impressed with his boat, car, and home ownership, and then impressed further by his capable cooking. Delicious. Every time she has looked at him in this entire movie, she's made the most exaggeratedly flirtatious, horny faces possible, and somehow Kane still manages to misread it. Something wrong? No. She asks him what he plans to do after he's avenged Linda and Dave, and he asks her for suggestions. They sleep in separate bedrooms in the house that Kane built himself, but Kane has terrible nightmares of Dave on fire and the dog barking in the car that hit him. He wakes up in a cold sweat, but without making a sound, and somehow Heather is still drawn to the room to comfort him after his nightmare. Of course, the music turns tender and they're quickly kissing. Mort the dog has seen enough and gives them their privacy as they lean into bed together. I saw enough, too. He's so sweaty. Yeah. He's, like, dripping with sweat, and then she starts making out with him, and it is the grossest thing. So hot. (laughs) The next morning, Kane is taking a shower when Heather jumps in behind him and they make out some more. Yeah, you definitely need a shower after that one. Yeah. If these two are so perfect for each other, it's crazy Linda never thought to set them up on a date. It's like, these are your two best friends, and they're both single. Well, and she's never... only attracted to him when he's moist. <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> she notices the scar from the bullet Kane took in the first scene. God, is that what a bullet can do? If you're lucky. It's actually a pretty badass line, but it suffers from having been delivered by Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> Later that day, Kane and Heather are on the boat watching the armed gunmen patrol the Sulu Sea. Because they take no precautions to hide themselves, they're immediately spotted by a guard on the freighter. Turns out the guy with the binocs is not a guard on the Sulu Sea, but actually someone else surveilling the operation. That night, back at his house, Kane puts on a gun and tells Heather to hold down the fort here. Once he engages the security system, the home will lock down tight and no one can get in. Or presumably out. He locks her in and then rows an inflatable raft out to the Sulu Sea. You would expect him to at least keep to the shadows, but he parks his boat directly under a spotlight on the dock. At this point, I was wondering what was the reason for showing them spot the boat earlier if he's arriving completely undetected now, but it might not have been them spotting him at all. Right, right. It's a fake out. Kane grabs a hold of the first guard and snaps his neck to kill him. Then he climbs a mooring rope out to the Sulu Sea. The same guy who spotted his boat before now watches him through night vision binoculars. And he must not be one of the bad guys because instead of sounding some kind of an alarm, he just sits here watching Kane silently murder all the guards. He does eventually phone the sighting into someone, unclear who at the moment. Kane explores the interior of the boat. Back at Kane's home, Heather is unpacking her bags when Mort lifts a high heel out of her suitcase and she notices underneath it is a key to a BART station locker. So let's back things up here. The henchmen were busting down Linda's door. Yeah. And she looked down at her hands and she was holding this key. Yeah. 
How did it get into the suitcase? The best I can figure is that Heather came down to collect her clothes before the police could inspect the whole apartment, and the key was wrapped up in the borrowed clothes, or maybe it was in this shoe, Yeah, and it specifically I, fell out in the suitcase. That, that That's my assumption. Yeah. But that's an awful lot on Linda. Like, she knew that would happen? My friend upstairs is going to come reclaim this shoe? Yeah. Like, I borrow something for two hours, and she comes knocking on my door wanting yeah. it back. Back on the freighter, Kane finds several boxes of something labeled Explosive C and prize one open. Inside, he finds what look like fireworks, but when he dumps the powder in his hand and touches it to his tongue, I think we're meant to infer that this is heroin. Right. Uh, but apparently it's not all heroin? Yeah, it's like 50-50. <laughs> and you just have to inject it first to find out. <laughs> he just likes the taste of gunpowder. That's it. <laughs> A group of Asian businessmen, who evidently still haven't been informed that there's an intruder on the ship, enter to inspect its contents. A pair of guards enter close behind them. Kane notices that he's left his knife on the box he pried open, and when he tries to pull it back, he drops it to the floor, and the guards hear it hit the ground. I was just yelling at him. I was like, it's what the are you laziest doing? knife grab I've ever just, seen. Just leave it alone. No one's going to see it. And if they do, who cares? Yeah, it's way less suspicious as just a knife on a box. They open fire in Kane's direction, but someone reprimands them not to shoot in this boat full of explosives, which I thought we just determined were actually drugs, but yeah. a no, lot of them also, are explosives. Also just fireworks. I may just have no idea what's going on here. Fireworks are also illegal, though. Yeah. <laughs> Kane uses one kick to open up another box of explosives and a follow-up kick to bust a hanging lamp so that it throws sparks down into the open explosives box. But how did he know that that one wasn't drugs? <laughs> Well, maybe if it wasn't, then the heroin smoke would have just knocked out all the guards. <laughs> I have a feeling that maybe they're like, the top layer is explosives, and then like a different part of it is the heroin. But the one that he emptied out was on the top, wasn't it? Yeah, but I'm just saying he 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 broke one in half, and I feel like that one had you know the, ex the explosive powder in it. But I think then... that one's supposed to have heroin in it because oh. he's supposed to be discovering heroin in this shipment of I fireworks. Don't know. Or is it? both like like there is actual firework components and heroin I don't components what well, like when you hide the heroin in you know stuffed teddy bears you don't take all the stuffing out and replace it with heroin right, you only true. take some out and put yeah. the heroin in that is how i typically do that <laughs> i know that's I, I i was referencing something i knew you'd understand thank you that's why <laughs> thank I you for putting it in my terms <laughs> that's why it was really problematic when i tried to ship heroin in sacks of flour Yes. <laughs> it's like, ah, shit. <laughs> Kane uses one kick to open another box of explosives and a follow-up kick to bust down a hanging lamp so that it throws sparks into the open box. This triggers a series of explosions that eventually engulf the entire room. Do you guys recall the last time someone destroyed a lamp to ignite explosives? Um, I don't. He threw a ninja star into a lamp and the sparks lit a puddle of gas. Was it also Chuck Norris? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, um, is it the high risk? No, but it's like that one. Oh, those all blend together for me. Um, the explosion killed a bull. Oh my God. Was it that one? Yeah. I can't think of the title, but I know exactly the scene you're talking about now. Force five. Force five. Here's a weird detail. Kane seems to take off the belt with his gun holster and use it like a whip to knock more guards unconscious. After clocking a couple guys, he seems to simply discard it on the floor instead of having a gun for the rest of the scene. <laughs> he literally just tosses it and then walks away from it without but having fired like, a single shot. He's like MacGyver, right? Like, you know, I don't MacGyver doesn't bring guns to a fight. I'm just saying he doesn't need the gun. He's That's just going to use his hands. Yeah, and when he's making his getaway through the boat, he, he's like making his way down a narrow corridor and a guy comes up right behind him and fires and misses so he ducks down a side tunnel like on the boat or side hallway fights another guy but then never looks behind him to see what's going on with the guy who was following him yeah. with a gun just a few seconds ago it's like well no that extra was instructed to turn around and run when he missed the first shot yeah i was like there's still a guy behind you with a gun why are you just you're ignoring him yeah he escapes the room full of explosives and explores the ship more, taking out several more guards in the process, including one who takes a bouquet of wrenches to the face. <laughs> he just keeps punching and kicking more guards to sleep for a while, and many of them seem to be martial arts experts for some reason. Kane dives off the front of the ship to escape the growing crowd of survivor guards, and we cut to Captain Stevens watching these events unfold through binoculars. Jesus, that 
That son of a bitch is gonna blow everything. I think the film is still leaning into Captain Stevens as a red herring, but even the delivery of this line makes it clear that he's talking about Kane blowing the investigation and not the operation. We cut to the BART station where Linda was chased, and we see that Heather has abandoned the safety of Kane's home. She uses the key on locker 418 and finds Gary Coleman sleeping inside. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Do you kidding. remember the last time we found Gary Coleman sleeping, <laughs> sleeping inside in a, locker? a train station locker? No, it's an audio cassette in there. Do you guys recall the last time that someone hid evidence in a pay locker? Was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't in On the Right Track. Okay. <laughs> Was it Viking in the... No, the the MacGyver episode? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Countdown? No. More recently than Countdown. Season 1, episode 14 of MacGyver. Eyewitness? No. No, it was a woman. Yeah. She threw the key away afterwards because she never intended to go back to the locker. She was hiding evidence of a crime she had committed. I don't remember. Miss 45? That's right. Oh! Because she disassembles the guy and she's just leaving his parts all over town. So some of it is in a locker at a at a subway station. Heather collects the tape and steps to a payphone to dial a number. Just then, Kane arrives home to a note from Heather. I found it. I'm going to the BART station. I'll call you. You found what? Put more information in this note, Heather. And and which BART station? That yeah. was the problem earlier. Yeah. There are many BART stations. No, my station is also named BART. <laughs> He checks his messages, and she mentions finding a key in her shoe and a tape in a locker. She tells him that she's headed to the Channel 6 building to play the tape, and she wants him to meet her there. Just as Kane enters the building lobby, he is waved through security by Mac, who is apparently expecting him. He says Heather is upstairs with Mr. Canfield, reviewing the tape now. Mac assures him that he has kept Stevens out of the loop on this. He tells Mac all about the firecrackers full of drugs, and that they'll need to check out that ship. When they get to Canfield's office, we can hear the tape playing, and it's Canfield's voice on the recording. He invites Kane into the room, and Heather tries to warn him it's a trap, but she's cornered by henchmen, and it's also super obvious already. (laughs) Suddenly, Kane notices that Mac has a gun trained on him, and he must have been the mole the entire time. Come on, Kane, read the room. I understand that since you left the force, you no longer carry a weapon. Does he, McCoy? He is a weapon. Canfield thanks them for finding the tape because he never would have found it on his own. But if they didn't, nobody would. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. It's not like they were going to check this locker eventually and just play the tape. Though, if I was some kind of uh, BART station maintenance engineer... You would start doing that? And like came across a locker that's been locked for an X, X amount of days or yeah. years. I'd break that locker open. It's like that Storage Wars show. There's a bunch of people like hoping there's something cool in there. Yeah, yeah. It's just a cassette tape. Ah, screw it. Look at Banana Ramatop. It's mine. With no cover. We sure scored big on that one, didn't we, buddy? <laughs> Canfield blames his confidence in Lisa on a fetish. My weakness for oriental women, you know. Mac also tells Canfield that Kane knows all about the Sulu Sea but hasn't told anyone yet. Canfield assures him that the fire was contained and the shipment is safe. As he leaves the office, Canfield essentially invites Mac to kill Kane and arranges to transport Heather to his home. When she refuses to budge, Canfield calls in the professor. The professor and Kane stare at each other for a moment, and amusingly, the second Kane lifts an arm to throw a punch, he is nailed in the back of the head by a weaker henchman and drops like a sack of potatoes. I was surprised that they let <laughs> the main character of this movie just get knocked out by a no-name henchman guy. Yeah. His hands are then tied behind his back, but as they put a belt around his neck, James busts into the room to save the day. James beats on one of the henchmen, while Kane kicks the other one mercilessly with his hands still tied behind his back. When both the henchmen are taken out, James unties Kane's hands. Kane makes his way to the building rooftop and spots Canfield's helicopter pulling away from the skyscraper. He confronts Mac, who was left behind on the rooftop. I don't know why. He should have just gone with them. Well, I, I imagine he's there to, like, clean up. Maybe. You don't do your own killing, Mac? I'm in this for the money, Sean. That's as far as it goes. Mac claims he was paid handsomely for this backstabbing, but that he wouldn't have done it if he knew they were going to kill Dave. Kane demands an explanation for Linda's death, and Mac draws a gun on him, insisting that he can't go to prison because of what they do to cops. When Kane continues moving toward him, Mac opens fire and Kane rolls away from the bullets. That's his strategy. He just gets down and rolls along the ground. There's a number of times where he's been in the line of sight of a bullet and just somehow barely dodges it. Yeah. Do you guys recall the last time someone was shot at on the rooftop of a skyscraper in San Francisco? 
Uh, Dirty Harry? That's right. All through that movie. Mac continues following Kane and firing on him repeatedly. Kane tackles Mac to the ground beneath a large piece of slow-moving machinery, and Mac is eventually crushed underneath it. James arrives just in time to console Kane over the death of his former friend. I was trying to look up what this was. I'm assuming it's some kind of construction crane yeah. or... Uh, but it's moving like laterally across a platform. Yeah, it's got rails and things on it. Yeah. And, and I, I imagine some kind of arm that overhangs the building, I guess. Right, yeah. But uh, I couldn't get any kind of clear idea of what it was. But it just mashes them real good. We see Canfield's helicopter land near his hilltop property, and he steps out to shake hands with a contingent awaiting his arrival. As they drive together, Kane tells James that Linda caught Canfield red-handed on tape, and consequently, he sicked his goons on her. Suddenly, they're being pulled over by a police car on the Golden Gate Bridge. Instead of surrendering to the traffic cop, they speed the rest of the way across the bridge to stay ahead of them. Back in Canfield's office, he shows Heather he still has the tape, and her efforts were all for naught. She already knew he had this tape, so presumably this is to establish that he didn't leave the tape in his office earlier. They want us to know that it's here in this scene. And on his person. Right. Kane and James arrive at Canfield's property. They park their car some distance from the house, and it is quickly spotted by the guards who report their approach. But then we notice that they're reporting it to Captain Stevens and not to Canfield. So this is, again, the other team that is moving in to capture Canfield. On the way to the house, Kane kicks a couple of guys down a steep incline beside the helipad, and one of them tumbles end over end for a while, and it looks really painful. I'm surprised at this stuntman's work. Even though the guards were just sent in to attack them, They sneak together toward the house uninterrupted, like a couple guys caught them and then nobody else came after them. Kane and James knock a trio of chauffeurs unconscious, and Captain Stevens is still watching all this with his men from a nearby hillside. Inside the house, Kane and James sneak through the kitchen, and James tries to eat some food before Kane drags him (laughs) away from it. Canfield sits down with potential customers and announces that the shipment is due for delivery very soon. But I don't think it's premature now to congratulate ourselves on a job well done. Or is it, Christopher Lee? A truck pulls up to the gate and the guards phone Canfield that the shipment has arrived. Kane and James are caught and taken hostage by a man with an automatic weapon, and Captain Stevens and his team decide now is the time to move. As they're walked at gunpoint through the courtyard, James ducks so that Kane can wield a spinning kick over his head and knock back the gunman, who accidentally fires his fully automatic weapon into the air, catching the attention of Canfield and his investors. Canfield is certain immediately that Kane is responsible. Kane fires a shotgun blast into another henchman's chest, but runs out of ammo and ditches the weapon. Shit! Captain Stevens and his team of hundreds of cops start laying down cover fire for the two men taking on the compound by themselves. More guards are repeatedly kicked, and one is sent sailing off a diving board into a pool. Yeah, I was like, like, okay, please keep kicking him in that direction. Yeah, he's got to go into the water at least. Canfield makes another unconvincing announcement to his customers. Gentlemen, I assure you there is no need for any alarm whatsoever. We have more than enough people here to take care of the situation. Canfield's security team are getting perforated by the hailstorm of bullets from Captain Stevens and his men. Another henchman sneaks up on Kane, and he lays into the guy with a pillow first, and then kicks him in the head over and over like he's a speed bag. James is caught in the house by the professor, and the two square off. Outside, the cops continue blasting a comically excessive amount of bullets indiscriminately into the house, and yet henchmen still bother to shoot back at them and are quickly taken out. Stevens finally reaches the delivery truck and finds boxes of explosives packed to the top. It's a miracle nobody's shot this vehicle yet, considering how many guns are firing in every shot of this scene. Yeah. The professor lifts James off the ground and carries him around the house for a bit before tossing him onto the floor of the living room right in front of Kane. Hey! For no apparent reason, the limousines of all of Canfield's guests start exploding in the driveway. What did that? (laughs) Why are these limousines exploding? A few of them make a run for Canfield's helicopter and are promptly mowed down by the cops beside it. The professor lets Kane throw a few uninterrupted punches and takes them like a champ. A hard slap across the face seems to affect him slightly more. Kane knocks him back a step with a spinning kick to the chest and the professor's patience is wearing thin. He finally responds to a smack, by slapping Kane to the floor and then tossing him across a couple bar tops. Kane faces off one more time and goes into a tornado kick that catches the professor on the chin and is foleyed for some reason with a gunshot ricochet sound. Yeah. 
Immediately after that, we see Kane swing his leg up hard into the professor's face, but in the insert we see a punch and, an, <laughs> and another ricochet sound. <laughs> Kane reels back for a final jump kick that sends the professor crashing through a massive coffee table to the floor, and he is down for the count. When Kane turns around, he comes face to face with Canfield, holding Heather at gunpoint. He asks Kane to step aside and allow him to leave, and he's just about to comply when Canfield's assistant walks in with a dog on a leash. <laughs> we are treated to a flashback of Dave's death and the dog barking in the car that night, and this is the most meaningless twist I've ever seen. It turns out the bad guy in charge of this whole heroin ring is the same bad guy who killed Dave to protect this whole heroin ring. Yeah. <laughs> who cares? Haven't we already established this? We know he's in charge of all of it. And If it wasn't him specifically driving the car, then it was definitely someone working for him. Yeah. And yeah. It was his fault already. I don't understand why he was there. We don't even know for sure that he was. It could have been this guy that was just walking the dog oh, for him. Oh, the guy had the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Did you notice the gun uh, that Christopher Lee had? No, I didn't. Is it a PPK or yeah, something? Yeah, it's a Walter PPK. Yeah. I was like, oh, he's got like a Bond gun. <laughs> he was a Bond villain. Yeah. With his, a gun. <laughs> and his cousin was Ian Fleming. In a car. It was you in the car. I'd like to stay and discuss this with you, Mr. Kane, but you understand. James shouts something from the other room, and Canfield is distracted just long enough for Kane to knock his gun away and grab him around the throat. Just then... Captain Stevens rushes in to find Kane strangling Canfield to the ground. He tries to talk Kane out of committing blatant murder with a lot of badly 80-yard afterthought dialogue. Don't do it, Kane. Not now. Not when we've got him. It's the wrong move, Kane. He's through, man. Shut up and tackle the unarmed man strangling your suspect. Yeah. You're really just going to let him do this again? Stevens admits that he knew that Mac was a mole, but they had to let him operate just to secure this sting operation. Yes, we knew all along, sadly. Kane might have actually committed our second Raiders of the Lost Ark protagonist should have done nothing mistake for the season, because it seems like the cops had this pretty well in hand and might have taken a lot of these people custody instead of murdering them all. Heather points out that the case is cut and dry, Canfield will go to jail if you just stop strangling him to death, and finally Kane relents. Seconds too late it seems, but then Canfield shows signs of life. I think we're supposed to think maybe he killed him here. Kane pulls the tape out of Canfield's pocket and tosses it to Stevens. Bet you wish you destroyed this hours ago when you absolutely already would have, eh Canfield? <laughs> A pair of cops drag Canfield away and Stevens follows Kane into the other room to congratulate him for a job well done. I hate to say it, but uh... Thanks. You know, I'd hate to say it too, but you're welcome. Kane has an arm around Heather as they walk through the yard littered with corpses <laughs> and <laughs> listen to James blather on about Kane's terrible form. I was laughing so hard. It's just like more and more bodies yeah. just lying all over the ground. It, it reminds me of that the commando scene where he's just killing everyone in the front yard of that mansion in yeah. Beverly Hills. When it dissolves from this scene, it's this really epically long dissolve. Yeah. It's like a good 20 second dissolve. Yeah. To just wide shots of the San Francisco area. Yeah. Namely the bridge, basically. But as they're, as they're walking away from the house, James is claiming that in his prime, he'd have had no trouble defeating the professor alone. And that's the end of our film. So that's an eye for an eye, everybody. Better or worse than the octagon? Start with that. Worse. I agree. Oh, really? I, I would say better. Uh, I think the story in the octagon is better. Uh. There's a ninja school and he's infiltrating it. I, I, the, I, the problem with this movie, though, is it's just bad, bad and not funny, bad. Yeah. Like that. I I feel like I like a lot of bad movies better than this because at least I find them amusing. Is Steven supposed to be a red herring? Stevens? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When are we supposed to not think that he's a red herring anymore? When When is the reveal? Um, I would say that. When he says he's going to blow this thing? Yeah. Or are we still supposed to think he's a red herring then? I don't see how you could then. I mean, Because it, if, if you think that he's working in concert with the bad guys okay. and he's just keeping an eye on them and he's like, oh, he's going to ruin our whole operation. But then it doesn't make any sense, as you said, that, that no one tipped these right, guards yeah, off, yeah. that they're being slaughtered. Yeah. I just feel like that it doesn't feel enough like a reveal of, oh, he's not the bad guy at that moment. It feels like we're still supposed to think he's a red herring when we're going into the Channel 6 building and Max says, don't worry, I kept Stevens out of it. Right. Well, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, it makes sense for Kane 
to think that, but it doesn't make any sense for the audience to think that. Okay. Um, I, I feel like that's weird to have, have yeah. our revelations separated like that. I, exactly. Because then when the reveal happens with Mac, it's less of a reveal for us already because we've, we've excluded the possibility of this other red herring. And, and when Chuck Norris quits the force, uh, Roundtree watches him leaving the building and he smiles, but it's not like a, Oh good. I got that guy out of here. Smile. It's like, he's going to get this shit done for me. Yeah. Kind of smile. It's like, finally someone who can work outside of the bureaucracy. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay. And we have a Batman on our team. So when they kept trying to make him a red herring, it was yeah. like, no, I already know who it is. And also Richard Roundtree could never play a bad guy. He's too charismatic to play yeah. a bad guy. Thumbs down, I think. Thumbs down. Oh, it's a thumbs down. Yeah. But I, I, I think I, I liked it a little bit better than the Octagon. Uh, I think the Octagon is is more entertaining in, in some of the, the, the cheesiness. I think that's what but, I was upset about here. I mean, the fighting is probably better here. Yeah. There's definitely a higher kill count. Well, and I think I think that this, a lot of aspects of this film just look better. Yeah. Uh, just like the you know like the scene, production value. Yeah, the, like scenes are competently lit. Yeah, <laughs> like I was like, okay, I feel like there was an actual person behind the camera. Yeah, here. yeah, but if I'm not laughing at a Chuck Norris movie, what's the point? That's true. These are all good points. <laughs> He's not dropping out of a helicopter into a ca- into a convertible and then punching the woman driver. Yeah, what is that from? <laughs> it's from Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah. Oh man, that show so good. Walker says I have AIDS. <laughs> I was just gonna say that line. <laughs> Walker tells me I have AIDS. Is that what he says? Or Walk- Walker told me I have AIDS. Some of was like Haley Jaws meant delivers like, a line. Why? Why is he your doctor? <laughs> why would what? he tell you that? Walker told me I have AIDS. Why wouldn't your parents tell you that? Why wouldn't your doctor tell you that? Why? Why is Walker in charge of this information? Haley Joel played all kinds of really oddly tragic child characters in his career. Even on, uh, he was an episode of Allie McBeal, and he was like a kid dying of cancer. Really? And I was like, geez. Allie told me I have cancer. <laughs> Allie? He doesn't have cancer? <laughs> Dumb kid. It's the April Fool's episode. And then in the middle of their Chuck Norris review, they went on this like eight minute Haley Joel Osment bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where's this going letterboxed? Do we know? Uh, pretty low. Yeah. I didn't enjoy it. Um, what are we at, 108? We're at 108. I have it at 103. All right. It's below Image of the Beast and above Student Bodies. Richard, where you got this? Uh, I have it at 72. Okay. That puts it below The Nesting, but above Modern Romance. I have it in 99, which puts it just under Secondhand Hearts and just above Hard Country. That sounds pretty right. Our director here was Steve Carver. Before this, he directed Steel, and then later Lone Wolf McQuaid, also starring Chuck Norris. The writer and story came from James Bruner. This was his first script. He's back for lots of Norris stuff, Missing in Action, Invasion USA, Delta Force, and sequels. The other writer, William Gray, last season he wrote The Changeling and Prom Night. Wow. And then he wrote this. He's back later with The Philadelphia Experiment and a couple episodes of the 90s Dark Shadows reboot and then the 90s RoboCop series. The music here came from William Goldstein. He's the composer of White Lions, Force 5, Up the Creek, and Shocker. Cinematographer Roger Shearman. He previously DP'd Norris Vehicle, A Force of One, and he's backlighting Lone Wolf McQuaid for the same director. Editor Anthony Redman previously cut The Incredible Shrinking Woman for us. He's also backcutting Lone Wolf McQuaid, The MacGyver Pilot, King of New York, Highlander 2 The Quickening, Bad Lieutenant, and Street Fighter. Aaron Norris was the stunt coordinator. He's the brother of Chuck, and he worked in the same capacity last season on the Octagon. Chuck Norris played Sean Kane. We saw him last year in the Octagon. He's in Way of the Dragon, Invasion USA, Missing in Action, A Force of One, Delta Force, Lone Wolf McQuaid. He's Booker in the Expendables franchise, and Walker, Texas Ranger, the inspiration for the Walker, Texas Ranger lever on Conan O'Brien. Christopher Lee was Morgan Canfield. We saw him last in our Patreon review of Scars of Dracula, and before that last season as Luckman Skull, the leader of the gay biker gang in Serial. He's Saruman, he's Count Dooku, he's the man with the golden gun, and perhaps his most dastardly villain, Sender, in John Landis's The Stupids. That's right. Richard Roundtree is Captain Stevens, he's Shaft in all the Shaft movies. He's in Inchon, he's in Q the Winged Serpent, Maniac Cop, Angel 3, 
and MacGyver episode Tough Boys. I was going to say Tough Boys. Because I was thinking, wasn't he kind of a villain in Tough Boys? But I guess he, in the end he wasn't. No, I think there was a, a he was, a, again, a red herring for somebody yeah. else. Matt Clark played Tom McCoy. So far we've seen him play a corrupt warden in Brubaker, a corrupt cop in Ruckus, a corrupt sheriff in Legend of the Lone Ranger, and this character. <laughs> Later, he shows up as Uncle Henry in Return to Oz, bartender in Back to the Future 3, and he's Roger Ansford in the TV movie Trilogy of Terror 2, also from Burnt Offerings director Dan Curtis. Mako played James Chan. He was Herbert in Battle Creek Brawl last season. He was Enjiro in the Bushido Blade and Nakamuri in Under the Rainbow, though I don't think they ever say that character's name in Under the Rainbow. He's the Japanese spy. Right, right. Later, he's a wizard slash narrator in Conan the Barbarian and Destroyer and the narrator of Dexter's Laboratory. He's Aku on Samurai Jack and probably most famously Uncle Iroh in Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah. He was also the voice of Splinter in the 2007 animated TMNT movie and he reunites with Chuck Norris for Sidekicks in 1992. Maggie Cooper played Heather Sullivan. This was her first film. She also played a Rylon Greeter in The Last Starfighter. Oh. Do you know who that is? Yeah, I, I can kind of picture who she is. But she doesn't have a lot of other roles, so th- yeah. these are two of her, her main ones. Rosalind Chow played Linda Chan. She's Lee in the new Disney Mulan. She's Caroline in Better Things, but she's probably best known to Star Trek fans as Keiko O'Brien, wife of Cole Meany's Miles O'Brien. She was also just in The First Lady as Tina Chen. And obviously we had her last year in Battle Creek Brawl. Right. Both films make tragically little use of her work because she she disappears very early in the story. Yeah. Professor Toru Tanaka plays The Professor. He was a professional wrestler turned actor who performed in the ring as Professor Tanaka, hence the nickname in the film. This was his first feature film role. He was Francis's butler in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He's Sub-Zero in The Running Man, Tokyo Joe in Alligator 2, The Mutation, and Rushmore in Three Ninjas. He and Mako appear together in the 1991 martial arts film, The Perfect Weapon. Stuart Pankin played Nicky LaBelle. We've seen him now as Dudley in Hollywood Nights, Sam Tate in Hangar 18, and Sweeney in Earthbound. Later, he's Earl Sinclair in Dinosaurs, and Commander Edward Plank in Xenon Z3, Girl of the 21st Century. Yeah. Terry Kaiser played Dave Pierce. We've seen him previously as the day manager in All Night Long, but he's definitely best known as Bernie from the Weekend at Bernie's films. He's also Count Spretzel from Stuart Raffles' Mannequin 2 on the move and the mad scientist who puts Paul Walker's brain into a robotic dinosaur in Stuart <laughs> Raffles' Tammy and the T-Rex. <laughs> he's back later this season for Looker and much later as Dr. Cruz in Friday the 13th Part 7, and he reunited with Norris for a recurring role on Walker, Texas Ranger. Mel Novak played Tony Montoya. He was an associate producer on the film who was initially offered Nikki LaBelle, but he wanted to play the Montoya part. He played Stick in Game of Death. Do you guys recall the last time we dealt with someone named Stick? Oh, yeah. What was that? Uh, That was uh, Student Bodies. That's right. We've seen him so far in Tom Horn and Force 5 on the show. Dorothy Dells played Cab Driver. She was Helen Vogler in Death Warrant and a judge in Space Rage and Sledgehammer. Dove Gottesfield played Doctor. He was Commando in Swamp Thing. Rick Prieto played Stark. He's back for almost exclusively Chuck Norris stuff, Missing in Action 3, Delta Force 2, Sidekicks, Walker, Texas Ranger, and The President's Man. J.E. Freeman played Tow Truck Dude. He shows up later in Miller's Crossing, Ace, Iron Eagle 3, and MacGyver episode birthday. Oh. He's also Santos in Wild at Heart and Marty Cantor in Patriot Games. Joe Bellin played truck driver. So far we've seen him as a luggage salesman in Cardiac Arrest, a dispatcher in Die Laughing, consulate servant in The Competition, and a reporter on the pier in Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. Daniel Forrest played the VW driver. He's back right around the corner as a mime in Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. Joe DeNicola played parlor manager. He's a brothel attendant in Godfather 2, so very similar jobs. Right. Jeffrey Bannister played man on walkie-talkie. He played implosion man in Poltergeist. What does that mean? Implosion Did he play the house at the end? (laughs) I don't know what implosion man means. It was the first Poltergeist? Yeah. I can't even, I can't even begin to think. Yeah. He's also Charlie in the Twilight Zone movie. Robert Beeling played a coroner. He was Harvey Nichols in Cardiac Arrest, which got a minisode earlier this season, if you haven't heard it. Harry Wong was a Chinatown shop owner. He was a tailor in Leonard Part 6. 
Nancy Fish played reporter number one. I think that's the woman who ends up replacing Linda in her job. She played a homeless bag lady in Howard the Duck. She's Nurse Allerton in Exorcist 3. She's Mrs. Noct in Cutting Class and Mrs. Peenman in The Mask. Oh. Yeah, his landlady who gets attacked by the mask. Right. We saw her last in that cardiac arrest minisode. Earl Nichols played Officer Ed. He played the fourth cop in Time After Time. Don Pike played Watcher, whatever that means. He was a chauffeur in the Octagon last year. I think that's the chauffeur who's pulling out of the driveway when the lady pushing a stroller starts firing into the ambassador's car. Okay. Mm. Tim Culbertson played a policeman. He's credited as cop in the hotel in Cheech and Chong's next movie last season. And Ben Jean played Mort. Ben Jean, if you'll recall, played Benji the dog in the franchise's second, third, and fourth installments and the series. We reviewed the third film, Oh Heavenly Dog, last season. That wasn't a Benji dog, was it? There's two dogs in this movie. One of them looks like Benji. Really? His dog. His dog at his house. Not the dog in the back of the car. Outside of the Benji films, Ben Jean appears in just this and uncredited as Stray Dog in Trading Places. I think that's everything for An Eye for an Eye. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube... Don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Brian Jadon. As a $5 patron of the show, Brian now has access to 30 full-size 70s reviews and 36 minisodes from 1980 and a hand in choosing next month's film. For August of 1972, $5 patrons are choosing between the following 10 titles. Everything you ever wanted to know about sex, asterisk, asterisk, but we're afraid to ask, Woody Allen's sex comedy anthology film, adapted from Dave Rubin's novel of the same name, starring Woody Allen, John Carradine, Lou Jacoby, Louise Lasser, Tony Randall, Lynn Redgrave, Burt Reynolds, and Gene Wilder. Four times that night, another sex comedy from Bay of Blood director Mario Bava, starring Brett Halsey, Daniela Giordano, Pascal Petit, and Bridget Skay, Brunhilde from Bay of Blood. Kansas City Bomber, a roller derby drama from anonymous MacGyver pilot director Gerald Friedman. It stars Raquel Welch, Kevin McCarthy, and a very early turn from Jodie Foster. Last House on the Left, Wes Craven's first feature film, an exploitation horror film, and Section 1 Video Nasty, produced by Friday the 13th's Sean S. Cunningham and starring To All the Good Night director David A. Hess. The Legend of Boggy Creek, a docudrama horror film that tells the story of the legendary Falk monster, an elusive Sasquatch that allegedly stalks the swamps of Arkansas. The Magnificent Seven Ride. No, it's not a theme park ride. It's the third and final installment of the Magnificent Seven trilogy, directed by George McCowan and starring Lee Van Cleef, Stephanie Powers, Michael Callan, Lucas Kew, and Ralph Waite. The Salzburg Connection. An American thriller based on Helen McInnes's 1968 novel of the same name, it's a Cold War spy story starring Barry Newman and Anna Karina. Snoopy Come Home, Bill Melendez's animated musical comedy drama road movie about Snoopy's tumultuous reintroduction to American life after a harrowing tour of duty in the Vietnam War. Not really. (laughs) It's about Snoopy and Woodstock going on an adventure to find a girl who wrote them a letter from the hospital. It's the second Peanuts film to release theatrically and the first to feature Woodstock. Superfly, a blaxploitation crime drama classic from director Gordon Parks Jr., Son of Shaft director Gordon Parks with a soundtrack from Curtis Mayfield. It stars Ron O'Neill, Carl Lee, Julius Harris, Sheila Frazier, and Charles McGregor. And The Way of the Dragon, a Hong Kong martial arts action comedy produced and directed by star Bruce Lee and featuring Chuck Norris from tonight's film in his debut role, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this August. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Nobody's Perfect which IMDb describes like so. The story of a group of misfits living in Miami and their revenge against government bureaucracy after the city refuses to pay for the damage to their car caused by a pothole. The three friends, including one with constant short-term memory loss and another who is constantly jumping from personality to personality, decide to steal an army howitzer and persuade the mayor to change his mind. That's the full IMDb summary of this film. You don't even bother to to mention the third guy's ailment. No, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Apparently not worth it. 
We leave you now with a trailer for Nobody's Perfect. Meet the outpatients of the Knollwood Clinic. Dibley, a hard-working guy. What? Unusual, amazing case. Recurring amnesia. I've forgotten how to drive. Swoboda, a gentleman and loving son. He never goes anywhere without his mother. Oh, here she is now. Good morning, Mrs. Swoboda. There we go. Buckle up. Take it easy, Doc. And Walter. A double schizoid. He was born in the middle of a Cagney Betty Davis double feature. Would you look at these ridiculous clubs. I look like Judy Garland. But then, one day on a drive, the city takes them for a ride. And whatever there is to snap, snaps. That's a very big hole. We need that car to go to the clinic. I'm sorry, but no claim can be considered unless a complaint has been lodged prior to any damage done. That's ridiculous. That's the law. Why don't you go fight City Hall? Columbia Pictures presents Nobody's Perfect, the story of three guys who are determined to beat the system. How do you take money from the city? Walter, I'm glad you asked me that question. What was the question? Their strategy, remarkably ingenious. Why are we following that tank as if I didn't know? Boldly imaginative. We need one of those cannons. And basically, insane. I like it. I love it. I hate it. Let's do it. All they need is a little help from the army. The general. Hello, soldier. The coast guard. Hey, boy, you got it up here. The mayor. We can threaten him with naval bombardment. And a woman with the heart of a stripper and the patience of a saint. Mr. Mayor, there's a man on the inter-island ferry threatening your life with a gun. They're anchored right off the front lawn. They've got an army cannon. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Gabe Kaplan, Alex Karras, Robert Klein, and Susan Clark. You don't have to be crazy to fight City Hall. But it helps. Nobody's perfect.